Miss Florence Curley had been the old man's secretary, and thirty years later she knew more about the business of Barnabas and Company than a roomful of ledgers. In the office she was accepted as a benevolent, omniscient intelligence. Outside the firm she was feared and respected. John rose to his feet. "'I shall go back to it, I think, Gina. Tooth's new one is a jumble, but I want to finish it. I'm having him up tomorrow.' John always spoke of having authors up when he meant that he'd invited them to an interview. He moved over to the door, an impressive-looking person with his tall, slender figure and close-cropped white hair. On the threshold, he paused. "'Where is Paul, Gina? Haven't seen him since Thursday.' Gina turned her head wearily. She had a wide mouth, slanting grey eyes, and dark chestnut hair. "'I don't know where he is. He hasn't been home since Thursday.' The quiet New England voice betrayed no embarrassment or resentment. "'If he comes in tonight, tell him to drop in and see me.' The door closed softly. Ritchie began to laugh, leaning back in his chair in the shadows. Ritchie Barnabas, brother of the transported Tom, was the only cousin who had received no share of the business under the old man's will. In 1908, Mike had been a baby and Paul was still at school, Ritchie was not much younger than John himself, but a clause in the will, which charged the beneficiary cousins to look after Richard Barnabas, threw some light on the old man's opinion of this nephew. The firm supplied Ritchie with a room at the top of the building, a reasonable salary, and the title of The Reader. He shared the work with some twenty or thirty clergymen, maiden ladies, and indigent schoolmasters scattered all over the country, but his was the official post and he lived in a world of battered manuscripts, on which he made long and scholarly reports. Everyone liked him, in the half-tolerant, half-condescending way with which one regards someone else's inoffensive pet. Every year he was granted three weeks' holiday, and was never missed. Only the increasing height of the piles of manuscript in his dusty room bore witness to his absence. Now he rose and walked over to Gina. "'I shall go too now, my dear.' he said, smiling down at her with mild blue eyes. A delicious tea. Gina smiled back and gave him her hand. He nodded to Curly, grinned at Mike, and wandered off to the door. The silence remained unbroken for some time by the three who were left. Miss Curly sat in her corner, apparently lost in thought. But behind her spectacles she was looking at Mike, sprawled out in the deep armchair opposite her with steady inquisitiveness. Michael Wedgwood was the son of the old man's youngest sister, and his place in the firm had been assured since his childhood. He had missed the war by a few months, and had been actually in training at school when the armistice was signed. He was twenty-eight or nine now, she supposed, kindly, polite, good-looking, dependable. He had the old man's size and dignity, and the Barnabas features too, the bright, sharp, dark eyes, the strong nose, and the sensitive mouth. Curly stole a glance at Gina, resting upon the high-backed couch. "'She doesn't know yet,' she thought. "'He's been careful not to say anything. He wouldn't, of course. People don't nowadays. The passions frighten them. But the old man,' she gave a faint smile, "'he'd have got her. It wouldn't have been nice, his cousin in the firm, but he'd have got her. That was where he was different from these nephews.' Gina did not glance in Mike's direction, but she was aware of him. 
Curly knew that by her studied calm. They were in love, then. A very awkward thing to have happened to those self-possessed, intelligent young people. Mike had been woken up under his skin, Curly saw with satisfaction. Of the girl she was not so sure. Of course, she could hardly entertain much affection for her husband. Paul's fake enthusiasms and windy lies, his braggatry. Surely no physical passion could counteract the blast of these upon a sensitive intelligence. Besides, what consideration did Paul give Gina? His mind was fully occupied in the hopeless and ridiculous task of putting himself over big. Where was he now, for instance? Rushing off on some wild goose chase? Throwing his importance at the head of some dazzled scribbler? To return on the morrow drunk with enthusiasm, only to be sobered and left sulky by the common sense of his elder cousin? No. If Gina had ever loved him, she could not possibly do so now.